0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Long ago, Detroit was carved up by the highways that made our sprawling metropolitan area possible. But what about the neighborhoods that were devastated by freeway construction, most of them poor, most of them black? What about the city? that was left behind. Today, we're going to talk about the history of our highways and new efforts to rethink the areas that were plundered by them. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR.
2: Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, Educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu.
1: Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We ride around on the freeways here in Metro Detroit almost every day and don't really think about what they mean or what they symbolize. For a long time, I've tried to encourage people on their commutes on their way in or out of the city for entertainment, to stop just for a second and think about these massive concrete byways that carve our city up in a way that you don't really see in too many other places. We don't just have a freeway in Detroit. We have lots of them. 94, 96, I 75 going north and going south, the Lodge, the Davison. These concrete slabs stretch for miles and miles across our city. And while they help us distribute products and people to various places, they also were created in a way that was damaging, that was destructive, and destructive particularly to African-American people. The freeways were built without the full consent of black residents, like lots of things in our community. And often, they were built actively ignoring the demands of black residents. Paradise Valley is one of the neighborhoods, just one, that was absolutely wiped out by the construction of I-375. But it's not the only one. The neighborhood where I was born, near Grand River and Livernois, which was finally turning into an integrated majority African-American neighborhood just before I was born, was absolutely plundered by the construction of I-96. It cut the residential portion of my neighborhood off from the thriving commercial corridor on West Chicago Boulevard, which included wonderful places like the Bluebird Lounge. You go over there today, 50 years later, and you can see the devastation on both sides. Finally, in this city and in the state, we're starting to rethink some of these things. And the state recently said it has a specific plan to pave over I-375 and create a new, quote, urban boulevard. Now, we don't quite know what that means yet, but it sounds interesting. The question is, will it be accompanied by a real reckoning of the things that were destroyed when I-375 was built? And further, are we ready to think about the other parts of the city, the other neighborhoods, the other black neighborhoods that were absolutely wiped out? Later in the program, we're going to be talking with some folks from Syracuse, New York, which is a little further along in this journey of rethinking highway development and we're going to talk to them about how they're facing all of these questions. But before we do that, we want to take that pause that I've been encouraging people to do for a lot of years and think for a bit about how our highways got created in the first place and what that meant for the people who lived nearby. Joining us for this conversation is Jaman Jordan. He is Detroit's official historian and founder of the Black Scroll Network History and Tours. Jaman, welcome back to Detroit Today.
3: Thank you. I'm happy to be here,
1: Steve. And also with us is Robin Boyle. He is a professor of urban planning at Wayne State University. Robin, welcome back to Detroit Today.
4: Good to talk with you again, Stephen. Yeah.
1: So, Jaman, let's start here. How did we come to build these highways in Detroit? Who was part of those conversations? And how did Black neighborhoods wind up on the bad end of
3: so much of that construction? Thank you. So now the majority, the overwhelming majority of the freeways, which at one time were called expressways, were built as a part of the Interstate Highway Act, which was passed in 1956, which is really a a really keynote of the Eisenhower administration. However, there are a few freeways um, that are in the Detroit area and run through the city of Detroit that were built prior to that. And so there's a, we have some that were built during world war II. Mm-hmm. So we have a few freeways built during world war II, And then the, the bulk of the freeways were built as a response um, of the Interstate Highway Act of 1956, which was pushed by the Eisenhower administration. and um, But all of these freeways have had a devastating effect on the communities that which they ran through.
1: Yeah. And what is the explanation? I mean, other than, you know, the history of inequality and institutional racism for the particular devastation to Places like Paradise Valley, which, of course, was uh, a thriving uh, commercial uh, district uh, for African-Americans. Why was this so so hard on black communities?
3: So there's a lot of reasons for that. So the first um, reason is that the, the building of I-375 and then the further outlet of the um, Chrysler Freeway, which is I-75, um, out once you leave um, uh, Black Bottom, once you leave the, the the downtown Detroit area, that building of that freeway, which destroyed Hastings Street, which was the major thoroughfare of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, the mm-hmm. black business and entertainment district in the city of Detroit, from the 1920s until the 1950s. So the destruction of that is part is one part of it. Of course, is the person who really put that plan in motion. And that's Mayor Albert Cobo. Mayor Albert Cobo has this really, um, really controversial history with the African American community. Um, he is running for mayor, uh, and his, even in his, his campaign, he's basically doing all of the signaling that he wants to keep African Americans out of white neighborhoods. He is not a fan of the African American presence in the city of Detroit. And so um, that's part of it. There's one person who is a large part of why Black Bottom and Paradise Valley have this freeway that runs through their major thoroughfare. So that's one part. The other part, of course, is African-Americans don't have the political power in the city of Detroit and in many other cities throughout the country because this is affecting African-American communities and other cities as well. Um, they don't have the political power in many of those cities to block many of the, much of this. They're not the majority population. They aren't the the largest voting population, so they're not able to remove folks from office and put people in office, put people in office who support their interests and remove people from office who oppose their interests. So that's another issue. Um, And then of course, the federal government itself has long been involved in creating policies that detrimentally affect the African-American community. And they begin um, on this road during the uh, Fair Housing Act of 1934, which forces African-Americans into particular neighborhoods because they can't get home mortgages to move into better neighborhoods. So they're cordoned throughout the country, particularly in the city of Detroit, in the area known as Black Bottom. They're concentrated in particular neighborhoods. And so due to the fact that they're concentrated in these neighborhoods, if a major street or major urban renewal development happens in that community, well, it wipes out that whole Black community because black, the Black community is not spotted all over the city of Detroit. There's They're concentrated in small sections of the city of Detroit, and any major renewal project will detrimentally affect that Black community.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Jamon Jordan, who is the city of Detroit's official historian, and with uh, Robin Boyle, Professor of Urban Planning at Wayne State University, uh, about highway construction here in Metro Detroit, and specifically in the city of Detroit, the devastating effect that that highway construction had uh, on many, many neighborhoods in the city. Most of those neighborhoods poor, most of those neighborhoods uh, majority African-American. And we're also talking about this new effort to try to rethink the areas that were plundered by freeway construction. Uh, is there a way to put those neighborhoods back uh, intact is there a way perhaps to to face the the reckoning i suppose uh with uh, the people who were harmed who were damaged whose lives were damaged by this freeway construction. Uh, We want to hear from you, of course, during this conversation as well. What do you want to see happen to, for instance, the space where I-375 is now, where the state says it will create an urban boulevard? Uh, What should that look like? How should that take shape Uh, as a way of trying to undo some of the damage that uh, was done when it was constructed? Also, give us a sense of whether you think other parts of the city ought to lose the freeways that uh, that carve through neighborhoods and and reinvent uh, spaces for people to live or to play or to work. Um, as always, uh, give us a call at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. We especially want to hear from you if you're a longtime resident of the city or a native Detroiter and remember freeway construction, remember neighborhoods that were taken apart uh, by this. Uh, I have to confess that uh, I was three years old when I-96 was built uh, and came through the neighborhood uh, where I was born and really did disassemble the sense of community, uh, the connectedness that existed there. Uh, that's not a memory that I have, that's something that uh, I've read about uh, as an uh, as an adult, uh, but certainly it's a place where I can talk about the consequences of that freeway being built. I can talk about the consequences of that disconnection uh, of that neighborhood. I'm sure there are lots of folks out there who have similar experiences. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to social media, to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, Robin, before we go to our listeners, uh, I want to talk about the other freeways in Detroit, I-94, I-96. What happened to Detroit neighborhoods that previously existed in, in those spaces?
4: Devastation. There was an incredible movement um, to bring these freeways into the city. Just a little bit of historical context, which I think is relevant to the whole of the metro area. There's a, a debate in this in this historical story as to whether the interstate freeways would actually punch into the heart of cities. Um, Apparently the original discussion, which is of course very much part of the of, of the national security agenda of the nineteen fifties, was to make sure that the cities could be linked so to move people and businesses and material and armaments across the United States. It was the pressure from the cities, from the mayors of the time that actually brought the freeways into the city. They wanted to be part of this for perfectly good reasons and that they wanted to make sure that their cities, the core of the cities, was not going to miss out on the economic development of the 1950s, which had already started to move out. The suburbanization of America was, as we've heard, starting in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And here was the potential that the cities would lose out when these uh, interstate freeways were built. So they argued for- forcibly to bring the freeways all the way in and that gave us you know the the destruction of East King Street the construction of I-75 and ultimately through urban renewal the 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 clearance of uh, Paradise Valley Black Bottom construction of uh, of, of uh, the downtown through Lafayette Park and then of course 375 57 years ago that road opened your comments about about people's memories is fascinating and the whole story is really interesting because of what the the jargon is, place attachment. How are people so connected to neighbourhoods that they themselves didn't even live in? That people, as you yourself said, you were three years of age when the when 96 was built, but you still have a commitment and a knowledge a memory, a feeling for these neighbourhoods. And I think that's really important as to what's happening today, because people are saying we want to be connected again to these neighbourhoods that really they've never been part of. And I think that's a very interesting change compared to what we were doing even just 20 years ago when uh, people were, were just saying, well, forget the past. But the past is really important today when people are discussing what to do with these neighbourhoods that were severely divided by the technology of the 1950s and 60s, which for people were eager to have, desperate to have, just like people want the internet or computers in the 80s and 90s. People wanted these roads to come into the city, but the people who suffered were the weakest, the least politically able, and in many cases, it was the African American and some other places like in Boylston, Los Angeles, the Hispanic community that was devastated.
1: Okay, when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about freeway construction, neighborhood destruction and how we go forward how we maybe repair some of the damage that was done in metro Detroit uh, and in the city of Detroit around freeway construction we're going to get to your calls and your social media comments as well David in Detroit, Jay in Detroit, Alan in Pleasant Ridge we'll hear from you if you want to join them 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones you can also go to social media Facebook or Twitter, put comments there we'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
0: This is the Michigan Association of Broadcasters Station of the Year, 1019 WDET Detroit's NPR Station.
1: Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. This hour, we're talking about uh, freeway construction and the destruction that that wrought on neighborhoods in the city of Detroit and other cities around the country. Uh, With us is Jaman Jordan, who is the city of Detroit's official historian and founder of Black Scroll Network history and tours. Also with us is Robin Boyle, professor of urban planning at Wayne State University. Uh, We want to hear from you as well, 313-577-1019. Give us a call and tell us what you think of the destruction that freeway construction caused in Detroit, but also give us a sense of what you would do about it. The state says it wants to pave over I-375 in the kind of uh, eastern part of uh, downtown Detroit and create an urban boulevard uh, where uh, the neighborhood paradise valley once sat Um, is that a good idea what would you like to see in uh, that urban boulevard what would you like to have be done to maybe compensate compensate the people uh, who lost so much when the freeway was built Uh, as always again 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones you can go to uh, Facebook or Twitter as well, and put comments there. Uh, let's start today with David in Detroit. David, what's on your mind?
5: Good morning. Uh, thank you for this uh, important discussion. I recall an exhibit at the Detroit Public Library a few years ago where they used uh, images from insurance maps from uh, a long time ago to piece together what Hastings Street and adjacent uh, they did. streets looked like. And that was a, a powerful moment for me as, in thinking about the term that you used, even uh, reconciliation, uh, and then your guests use the the winners and losers terms. So I've often wondered and haven't you know, been able to dedicate time to this research yet, but who are the winners and winners of, of those opportunities? So uh, presumably landlords owned the properties that the African-American community were renting. And in some cases, I know African-Americans were able to own some of the properties, but I would think that the vast majority of distribution would have been the landlords who would have been compensated for the loss of their property in some way, shape or form. So I think that would be an interesting piece of the discussion, to, a part of the reconciliation side of the conversation, is who were the individuals and corporations and public entities that directly benefited from the sale of these properties for the hmm. creation of the highways? And ha- have either of your guests ever looked back and, and began mapping that, that sort of uh, part of the, 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 the history that seems to get uh, overlooked in many of these conversations?
1: Great question, David, and it's a question that doesn't often come up, I don't think, in these conversations, right. the idea of if there are losers, uh, there are almost certainly winners. Uh, Jaman, I'll give you first crack at yeah. uh, at talking a little about that.
3: So the reality of it is the true winners of the building of the freeways were really the suburb, the suburbs, the suburban communities, the towns, the cities that outlie the city of Detroit, which, of course, the freeways give access to the residents to be able to come to the city of Detroit for their jobs, for commerce, but then get out of the city of Detroit to get home um, um, to the suburbs. And it also um, provides ways for people who are living in the city of Detroit to get to the jobs that were beginning to relocate to the suburbs. That's really the winners, the suburbs. But if we're talking about the the, the people who own property. And if we are talking about particularly Black Bottom, 80% of the people in Black Bottom are renters. So when the the building of the freeway and the other forms of urban renewal that happened in Black Bottom, even before the freeway, what they're given is a eviction notice. And they're not given any funds to relocate or anything. 20% of the people who lived in Black Bottom, who owned property in Black Bottom, were owners. And in many cases, not at all, but in many cases, even the owners were given unjust compensation. The city came up with all kinds of ways rather than to give the people what would be the, um, the value of their property. So in some cases, they waited till the homeowners um, just abandoned their own property because of the destruction happening all around them they realized that, hey, I can't live here and I can't rent this place because no one's going to move into this building and there's all this destruction happening right next door. Mm-hmm. So they waited till they just just um, walked away from their homes in some cases. In other cases, homeowners, because they kept getting ticketed by the city, destroyed their own properties. And then the city would offer them funds for a vacant lot after the homeowner had just given up and said, I'm going to just tear down my own house because I'm getting ticketed for not having a good roof or not having my pipes working or my windows busted out. So I'm getting ticketed, so I'm tired of the tickets. I'm gonna tear down my own building. And then then the city would approach them with an offer for now their new vacant lot. So these are all kinds of forms of um, unjust compensation. The Mm -hmm. only reason we know this is because a number of these building owners sued the city and they took their cases um, because the city would appeal if they lost And then if they lost again, they'd appeal again. Many people couldn't fight all those appeals, but a few did. And that's how we know some of the history of the people who, even though they ended up um, losing their property, they did not get justly compensated for that property. So Hmm. even the property owners did not become winners in most cases for the building of the freeway and the other forms of urban renewal that destroyed Black Bottom and Paradise Valley.
1: And and so, Jamon, I I think this is a, a good point in the conversation to talk about this new commission we have in Detroit that voters uh, put into place after last year's elections to, to look into the idea of reparations for African Americans here in the city for all kinds of different things. Housing is one of the things, though, that I think they're going to be really focused on. Uh, is there a practical way, I guess, is one of the questions to to dig through this history as, as you do in many cases, to identify the people who are owed something or perhaps their descendants. I mean, one of the things that I think people often kind of fall back on is they say, well, it'd be really hard to, to figure all that out so many years later. Uh, Talk about the practical ends of trying to unpack all that and say, all right, these are the people who were wronged and here's what we owe them.
3: Yes. So what, what would be good to happen, what would be possible to happen, is that you would have people, me and other people who research this kind of history, go into the records and find the um, the building owners, the homeowners, the property owners, the lot owners, and even some of the people who were wrongfully removed who were not owners. They were renters in some cases. And and, and the other thing is some of the so-called renters were really um, people who in in, in the community were considered owners because they were paying the owner for the ownership of the home. They couldn't get a mortgage. So they worked out a deal with the owner. And so they're paying the owner for um, $200 a month. And in 15 years, this will be my place. And then they were kicked out and they got nothing. But the owner did get something. And so he he, just so many people were wrong. Mm -hmm. So it won't be easy, but it can be done. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Robin Boyle, uh, I want to have you talk about the winners who were outside of the city. And that takes place in many cities around the country that suburbs become possible. They become livable because of freeway construction. And there's all this growth uh, and investment that follows freeway construction that has an effect of course on the neighborhoods and the people who were left behind what what do we do about that how do we how do we reckon with that wrong and try to make it right
4: great question um again relying upon recent activity by that recent I mean within living memory is is what happened when the plan was uh, put in place to build 696 across the metro area. Mm -hmm. Now there you do see a different political, um, the emergence of a different political equation. As as we've just talked about, the the politics of Detroit in the 50s was very one-sided, but the politics of 696 was different in that these individual communities in some Mm -hmm. cases, not all, but in some cases, used what they had their uh, their power of place to negotiate a different agenda to negotiate different developments to have decking to get some of the funds that were coming in for the construction of 696 used for park development for improvement of housing a whole variety of 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 ways in which the construction of the freeways had a somewhat less deleterious effect on some of these communities now is that happening today? I, I think we are seeing a different a different calculus coming on board. Neighbourhoods are more important. They realise they have voice and they are working hard, if they can, to uh, ensure that they get the benefits of, of, of the development. But there is no doubt that um, the construction of the freeways was seen as an economic engine. For the suburbs, which led to even more suburbanization, which led to even more construction, which we're still seeing today. Drive up 75, and you can see it every weekend when they're building yeah. yet more lanes up I-75 deep into Oakland County. The story continues. The story goes on. Yeah, yeah.
1: Again, 313 1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Elena in Detroit. Elena, Elena. welcome to the show.
2: Hi, good morning. Hey. Thank you. Um I just wanted to uh, mention a couple of current um events and also that my own grandparents were displaced by freeways three times in Detroit. Um three three times? Three times, three times yes. And my grandfather was absolutely convinced that the city planners were watching where he moved. (laughs) And following (laughs) him. (laughs) They were at at Sixth and Cherry,
1: and they were at
2: Ivanhoe and Grand River, and then eventually moved out toward 96. But I wanted to also say that right now there's a fight in the Detroit City Council to give the pensioners some of the money that they lost in the bankruptcy, and there is absolutely no relief for them. Duggan keeps on saying that it's illegal to give them anything. And what we're looking at with the paving over of this freeway is actually looking to me like white reparations. It looks like it's giving people their neighborhood that they would feel comfortable in now that enough black people have left.
1: So, so Elena, just to, to so I can be, be sure I'm understanding what you're saying, Your your fear is they'll pave over I-375 and not. Create, not create or recreate uh, uh, a neighborhood that that African Americans uh, are the majority in or are in control of.
2: Absolutely, there's completely almost a turnover to almost all white people living in the luxurious places downtown where black people had lived.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Elena, that certainly happened, of course, in in Lafayette Park and um, and other places that were developed when Black Bottom was was plowed over. Uh, Jamon, Jordan, I wonder if you have the same concerns about this plan around I-375, that it will become, I guess, a white space rather than a black or integrated space uh, for for
3: Detroiters. Well, you can't help but think about that because um, we know that when they built the freeway, the African-American community in black bottom was totally opposed to it. They did not want a freeway to destroy Hastings Street. That was really the reason. Hastings Street was just so important to Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Mm -hmm. But the mayor and the um, city government at that time, along with the federal government and the state government at that time, didn't care about the residents at that time. But now. Things have changed in downtown Detroit in the area that used to be known as Black Bottom, the area that used to be known or is still known, a part of it is still known as Greektown. That area is not the same anymore. There are very powerful, very wealthy businesses that are in that community. And that whole development of downtown has changed what downtown looks like. And now that there's a new group of people empowered in power in that area um, that used to be Black Bottom and used to be Greek Town. It used to be Paradise Valley. There's a new group of people. They don't want that freeway. And when black people were there and didn't want a freeway, mm-hmm. it, did, it, it didn't matter. But now there's a new group of people who don't want that freeway. And all of a sudden, the state is moving. Everyone's all listening. Of a sudden, but, yeah. the, but everyone's listening to this group of people. We have to be very clear that this is not from the residents. This is not a push for repaving I-375. Isn't that there was this big outcry from the residents of... Um Lafayette Park, Elmwood Park, Greektown, um, uh, at least residential folks. this is was not really an outcry for them. This is an outcry from the business community, from the from the, the from the very powerful businesses, corporations, and institutions that are in the downtown area. They don't want that freeway, and that means they don't want it there because there's other opportunities for them to do some development right. in the area once that freeway is gone. So that's important. And we ought to be thinking about some of the stuff that Elena just said.
1: Yeah. Uh, Robin Boyle, how, how do you take that and then make it into something yeah. more just? And, and, and cities struggle with this all the time, right? Uh, sure, they do. That sure. modern development often is not for the people who actually live in the place where the development's taking place.
4: Uh, You're right. And and let me just, I know you're going to go and look at other places, but I'd urge everyone to go and look at New Orleans, because New Orleans, since Katrina, has been engaged in a long conversation about I-10. It's called Claiborne Avenue. Claiborne Avenue is an elevated interstate freeway Mm -hmm. that cuts right through Treme in, in, in New Orleans. And the story there is really very different, because there, the community was involved all through the past 15 years of conversation. And at the end of the day, the black community in that area said, no, we're going to keep the elevated freeway. But we want to make the opportunity for our neighbourhood to grow and develop and get economic development in, in that area without changing the road, without taking that road apart. It's a very interesting and different story where you've got a resident community. The problem down in our area is that so many people were moved out as we just talked about for the past 45 minutes this area was devastated cleared out and the people that came in are doesn't really matter what color they are or what income they are they are new mm. they are different and it's very difficult then to get a a, a, a a momentum behind community change when people are there for different reasons that they're they're, they're they're there for a, a whole variety of reasons and that Conversation is really difficult to handle. A little bit of support to where we are today. The the, the report that we're that we're all talking about of, of of having no significant impact, which is ironic term by the way for the <laughs> for the report that's come out from the state. It does explicitly say there's going to be community involvement. Now I know that can be just words, but if we hold their feet to the fire then there should be engagement from people in the communities that we're talking about. And maybe we will get some change.
1: Okay. Jaman Jordan and Robin Boyle, it was really great to have both of you here uh, to talk about this. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Up next, we're going to continue this conversation about highway redevelopment. But we're going to bring in two people who are working on this issue in another place, in Syracuse, New York, where they are deconstructing Highway I-81. We will hear about what that's about and what neighborhood is benefiting from this rethinking. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Matters. Stories that impact your life.
3: Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is
1: 101.9 WDET.
3: Detroit's NPR station.
1: This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, thanks for tuning in. Urban renewal means black Removal. That's the lesson that Black folks have learned time and again in this country. When development comes, whether it's a highway or a nice new apartment complex, often Black residents who are already in the area get forced out. The story of the highways that destroyed Black communities here in Detroit didn't just happen here. They happened in Los Angeles. They happened in New Orleans, they happened in Baltimore, and in almost every major metropolitan city in our nation. The results have often been devastating. When highways destroy a community, people lose their jobs. Schools sometimes close. Air pollution worsens from the neighboring traffic. People become more desperate. And sometimes they even die younger than they otherwise would have. Recently, a Biden administration spending bill pledged $20 billion for cities across the country to redevelop portions of highways that destroyed black communities. One of the cities to work on redeveloping a chunk of its highway is Syracuse, New York. And to talk about what's going on there, how it fits into this larger context of rethinking highway construction, we've got two great guests Sally Santangelo is Executive Director of CNY Fair Housing. Sally, welcome to Detroit Today.
6: Thank you for having me.
1: We've also got uh, CNY Housing Policy Coordinator, Alex Lawson. Alex, welcome to Detroit Today.
0: Thanks, it's great to be here.
1: I'm going to start with you, Alex. To tell us about the history of I-81, how it was created, and what it did to the 15th Ward, a neighborhood in Syracuse,
0: yeah, it's it's very similar to uh, highways and cities across the country. You know, they had planned for a long time that there was going to be a route, basically, in in this corridor crossing New York State and Pennsylvania, um, going all the way down to Tennessee. And when they started getting into the details of what's going to happen in Syracuse specifically, um, they they talked to the local administration, who had um, its own sort of uh, goals that they were trying to go through because they were doing urban renewal at the same time. And the way the policy worked out is that this interstate highway got used for local urban renewal ends um, because it brought in all this federal money. And so specifically, they, the um, city administration wanted to get rid of the 15th Ward, which was Syracuse's only black neighbor at the time in the name of slum removal. And they use the highway to do that. So that's why it sits exactly where it does. Uh, If it had just been a transportation project, it probably would have been cited differently. But the um, people who were in power locally were interested in in achieving this uh, specific social outcome, which was to destroy a black neighborhood.
1: Mm. And so tell us what happened to the people who were in that community. Where did they go and what what kind of future did they face?
0: The uh, urban renewal um, it, uh, arm of the city government had to, you know, provide relocation assistance. And um, it's important to note that that even though this was a like the only neighborhood where um, African Americans lived in Syracuse, it wasn't uh, only African Americans living there. It was also home to a lot of white people. And when all that housing was destroyed, um, several hundred units displaced several thousand people, and the, the city had to relocate them. It didn't do so um, equitably along racial lines. Uh, white residents who relocated were moved farther away from the area, and black residents were often um, moved in areas that were still sort of near the highway. And that sort of created a, it, it, it very much changed the uh, racial patterns of segregation in the city because the one neighborhood where black people had lived was gone. But where they were moved to is sort of the same um, pattern we see today. Um, and so it sounds unlike uh, Detroit. Um, there are still like uh, neighborhoods with very high percentages of the black population living near the highway still.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, Sally Santangelo, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Tell us what's happening to the people near the 15th Ward now. What's their life today, and how does it compare to Those who live in other parts of the city.
6: Well, 81 is, um, it's a little bit different in that it's an elevated highway. So it is in many ways a wall Mm -hmm. that uh, really isolates the neighborhoods um, and creates this stark divide. Um, So the neighborhood adjacent um, to the highway, which we uh, call the south side of Syracuse, um, is also home to a large number of public housing developments, um, and that entire area is cut off from areas like the university neighborhood, um, areas where there's a lot of uh, job opportunity, like near our hospitals, and they're really walled off from those um, higher opportunity areas where there's more you know, other opportunities by the highway. And you see, of course, all of it, in, in addition to the isolation that the highway caused, all the health impacts um, that are created uh, by having this high speed uh, traffic um, and high levels of traffic going through the neighborhood. You know, people living, you know, feet from the highway mm-hmm. um, and having to experience all of the air pollution, the noise pollution um, for generations.
1: And- this idea that it will it will come down. I want to talk a little about what the plan is now, what it's going to become, of what I eighty one was. Alex, uh, tell us about that.
0: The uh, specific transportation plan, excuse me, is to remove uh, about a mile um, of the viaduct, which is actually I think a similar distance to three seventy five, and to um, replace it with um, a grade level street that would be um, two lanes in the other direction with turning lanes um, because the idea basically is that the, the highway would remain intact sort of all the way to the center of the city and then um, just as most people who are driving on it an exit and driving local streets, you just have a, a grade level local street. Okay. Um, the, w- w- what that's going to change though is that the highway is, is, is gigantic and the street is small. So there's going to be a lot of land left over, particularly where um, 81 currently has an interchange with another Highway 690. So there's going to be all this surplus land that's going to be used, um, just not needed by DOT anymore. And so they're trying to figure out what to do with that. Uh, and that's always been a huge part of the conversation here. You know, What's going to happen to this land? Um, because the support for moving the highway um, comes from a few different um, uh, interest groups. There's, the, there's downtown businesses and the university are interested in having it gone. And so are people who live near it because, they, uh, because of the health impacts and all of that. And so it is contested ground. And what uh, the New York State Department of Transportation has said they will do is form a land-use working group consisting of representatives from the city, the school district, um, economic development organizations, the business community, um, and also neighborhood residents and stakeholders to decide what to do with that excess land, uh, because that's really is, is what is going to make or break this project. Um, Because it's not enough just to remove the highway; you have to actually um, create
1: something else. Yeah,
0: you have to. Yeah, the highway was put there for social aims, and you have to keep social aims in the front of mind when you remove it as well. Yeah.
1: So, so Sally, I wonder if you can talk about the concerns, perhaps, that members of that community have about how much they'll be listened to uh, through this process, whether it will kind of take shape and unfold without them, much the way the highway itself did.
6: It's certainly a concern. And and there's concern that the land will only be used for things like high-end residential development. And, you know, there's been some, some concerning language, I think, by DOT about um, the opportunities that this land, you know, opens up for high-end development. Um, you know, we of course, hope to see the land used for um, public space as well as affordable housing. Um, you know, the the concerns I think about gentrification are real. At the same time, we also have a, a proposal moving forward to redevelop the public housing that is adjacent to the highway and redevelop that neighborhood into a mixed income neighborhood um, with increasing the density and Uh, supposedly preserving the units, affordable housing units. So what's been a little bit difficult here is that those conversations have gotten kind of intertwined. Um, And even though they're separate projects, it's created a lot of confusion, I think for the residents that Mm. live adjacent to the highway in terms of what's going to be happening to them. You know, another, another concern is that as part of the highway removal, there really isn't any plans to provide much mitigation or, um, efforts to address the concerns of the people living next to the highway through the construction process. I think they're they're basically expected to live through this construction, you know, again, feet from the highway. Um, and so that's certainly an area where there could be improvement in terms of of addressing the needs of the residents and listening to the concerns of the residents. But there's really been a lot of confusion and, and it's been 10 years of conversation. So, you know, it, Keeping track of what's going on at any time hmm. has been really difficult for um, for everybody um, e- involved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to read a couple of social media comments. Uh, Alex on Twitter says, there was no plan to provide housing for all the people evicted from Black Bottom. Uh, imagine being told that you had two weeks to move at a time when the rest of the city was inhospitable to Black residents, the largest Black community is where they built I-75. Amanda on Twitter says community engagement at the end of a process is not community engagement in the process. Telling residents whose communities are going to be affected when everything is already decided in a for, is a foregone conclusion is just lip service and disrespectful. Uh, I want to go back to the phones quickly before we end. Uh, Kim in Detroit, welcome to the show. Are you there, Kim? Yeah. Hello? Hi, Kim.
2: How are you doing, Steven? Good, how are oh, you? I'm, I'm, I've called several times, but this is the first time I've gotten on. Steve, I'm 82 years old, and I was born in Detroit, 2275 Chestnut in Black Bottom. Wow. So, what you all are talking about, you don't have enough time for me to, to mention <laughs> it, but you're on the right, you're on the right road now.
1: So, so, Kim, I wonder if you can talk about what you think of this plan to restore some of the the neighborhood, I guess, or, or the area that would be the neighborhood where where you lost your home.
2: Uh, I'm not interested in them restoring anything.
1: Hmm. We
2: need to invent what we want to do. We need, God has given me some concepts that if we would come together, we could...
1: Don't worry about what they've done, just use what they've got yeah wow kim i I really appreciate the call uh and and of course your memory which uh you know a, a, again i I said earlier in the show that there are lots of people in our community who do have memories of uh of where where things used to stand and uh what happened to them um you know when we built these when we built these uh these, these freeways. Um, before we have to, to end, uh, Sally, I, I want to have you talk just a little about what your outlook is for this area around I-81 and whether you're, I guess, optimistic that this will move things forward for the people who, who are there. So I
6: am optimistic. Um, I'm I'm always optimistic by my nature, but I am optimistic. You know, the fact that we're even talking about what the the grid and the rebuilt community looks like um, is is a, a win. You know, there was a, a few years where we didn't even we thought we they might actually build a new viaduct, replace the viaduct. Um, there was a lot of talk and and distraction about the possibility of creating a tunnel. Um, and there was a lot of opposition to the proposal that they're moving forward, um, particularly by suburban business interests. Um, there's a, a large shopping mall that is on the current path of the highway that that was strongly opposed, still is strongly opposed um, to the plan. So the fact that we we're actually talking about what we want to our, our reconnected community to look like is a victory. Um, and now it's it's about getting the details right. Um, to make sure that this is a a neighborhood that um, restores, to the extent that we can, um, some of the harm and repairs some of the harm that were caused by urban renewal. Um, We still, you know, like your caller, we still have people living in the area um, that were displaced from the 15th Ward or their children. Um, And we need to be deliberate about um, how we uh, repair the, the harms, um, caused by the, or suffered by those families. Um, so I am optimistic. We're a small community, so, you know, it's easier, I think, in some ways for voices to be heard. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll see, uh, the area redeveloped in a way that, um, uh, really honors, uh, what yeah. was destroyed. Yeah. Okay,
1: Alex Lawson and Sally Santangelo, it was really great to have you here with us to talk about what's going on in Syracuse, New York. Uh, Thanks very much for joining.
6: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with Kelsey Ronan about her new book, Chevy in the Hole. This is 1019 WDETFM, uh, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.